Shalom. 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 We're continuing our study of the first Corinthians. And today I've titled the message, Church Discipline in Christ. We have learned that uh, the Corinthian church was a very prodigious type of church. They were very gifted uh, in terms of spiritual gifts, revelations, certain types of spectacular powers. But at the same time, we've learned that the Corinthian church was a very fleshly or worldly church. The church was very immature. You know that you can be very immature and be very talented and gifted at the same time. And that's exactly the case of the Corinthian church. More than anything, they lacked wisdom and discernment, which is crucial in any kind of leadership, any kind of operation as a corporate body. And uh, we already studied about a particular problem that occurred in the Corinthian church, and that was that there was such a sense of disunity because of jealousy and quarreling and, and all kinds of factions. And what attributed to that? Well, it was their idolatrous notion about leadership. That they were claiming that we belong to this leader or that leader, we belong to that party or that spirit. And that caused them to have even more of a sense of spiritual pride. And so Apostle Paul had to deal with that by reminding them that Christian leadership, the type of leadership that Jesus established, was that which was based on servanthood and stewardship and shepherding. Today we're going to see another major problem, and that's the beauty of this, this letter, that there are many, many problems that we can really identify with. Uh, you don't have to read long before you say, hey, that's happening to our church. And that happened to the Corinthian church long ago. And this major problem has to do with sexual immorality. So I know this is not an easy topic to talk about because the whole sexual issue is uh, actually uh, a major issue in America, in Korea, even in the church, even among pastors and teachers in the body of Christ. But we need to face up to this and see what Apostle Paul has to say about this issue. Let's begin with uh, verse 1 and read all the way to verse 2 in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Obviously, this is talking about the stepmother. Obviously, you're not sleeping with your mom. That just doesn't make any sense. Context is very clear that this man is sleeping with his father's wife. That would be his stepmother. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? We need to understand that the city of Corinth in those days was notorious for sexual immorality. They actually had this temple dedicated to Artemis or Diana. And they had temple priestesses who were acting as prostitutes. In other words, for them, the whole thing about 
worship and veneration had to do with fertility. And that fertility is signified by the priestesses acting as sexual partners to, to the men of Corinth and others who would come to the city of Corinth. So the city was notorious for that. The term here for sexual immorality is porneia. And you might recognize right away, you know, the term sounds like pornography. Yes, it is. It has to do with any kind of sexual immoral type of idea. And that primarily has to do with extramarital sexual relationship of any kind. The Bible talks about sex should be reserved for marriage bed. Okay? And so any type of sexual relationship outside of that would be considered sexual immorality. In this particular case, though, it was a sin of incest, having an affair with one's own stepmother. This was not even heard of even among the pagans. This was a very uh, blasphemous act, even in the sight of the pagans. And you know, the Old Testament is filled with these notions that, and the laws that prohibit this kind of affairs. In Leviticus 18.8 and Deuteronomy 22.30, there's a prohibition against this kind of sins. And there's actually a curse that's placed upon anyone who commits this kind of sin in Deuteronomy 27, verse 20. It seems like there was also a rabbinic law. That is, the rabbis, out of their wisdom, decide to interpret their own way of uh, looking at the law. And there was some kind of allowance given to the new proselytes who were assumed to have broken all kinds of relational bonds so they can in their new faith, in Judaism, they can marry their stepmother. There seems to be a law, a provision for that. Maybe some of the Corinthians embraced this idea that was the influence of the synagogue that taught under this kind of a rabbinic teaching. And maybe they thought it was okay to operate that way. But the problem here is not just the sin itself. This is what Apostle Paul is saying. The greater problem is this sense of audacity, arrogance regarding this sin. And a sense of complacency that the church is completely failed to discipline the violators. Paul says, you're proud about this? You're arrogant about this? How could you do that? And yet we know the cases, even today in the body of Christ, whereby people have pride in their sin. This is what we call Gnosticism. Say, our spirituality is way beyond this sin of the flesh. Even the sin of the flesh cannot affect my spirituality. There are people, there are ministers going around committing this kind of uh, sins on a regular basis, and yet they stand at the pulpit to preach the Word of God. That's a rarity, but that does happen. So you can have a sense of pride in your sin, thinking, I may be sinning in the flesh, but I am strengthened in my spirit. I'm united with Christ in spirit. So you justify yourself or spiritualize yourself. There may also have been a, a sense of pride in having dealt with the man in a loving way. Maybe the church is saying, hey, we didn't condemn this man. We didn't put him out. We embraced him with a father's love thinking that anything that's done with unconditional acceptance is okay. This kind of therapeutic way that we 
the church in America especially is familiar with. Or maybe there was pride in spite of the sin. Okay, this man has sinned, but look at our church. Our church is a great church, very gifted church, revelatorily minded church. We have leaders of this type and that type. We belong to a great pedigree. So this man may have sinned, but we're still a very great church. The sense of arrogance may still be there. And what Apostle Paul is saying is, no, you should be mournful as though you're attending a spiritual funeral. This man has literally died in the spirit, and he's bringing death to this body. In other words, the church should have done something about this man, and which leads to this whole discipline of excommunication. I don't like the word excommunication because it's, it's such an extreme term. You know, it reminds us of the church under uh, the Roman Catholicism where they had inquisition and they would root out all kinds of heresies and then they would excommunicate them. The church taking power and authority says, cut them off and then they would feel like they have no more salvation available for them because apart from the church, they thought that they could not be saved. Apart from the Eucharist, that the church would provide for them, that they would not be able to be saved. Well, let's move on and talk specifically about this idea of church discipline. I think this is important. Verses 3 to 5, let's read this out loud together. For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Here, Apostle Paul is exercising his apostolic authority and he's basically passing a judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he's demanding that the Corinthian church discipline this man in his absence. But he says, I may be physically absent, but I will be present with you in spirit. I don't want you to think too mystically about this notion, but Apostle Paul had such faith that he felt like his spirit was in agreement with this, and he wants the Corinthian church to come to an agreement and have an assembly whereby they will discipline this man. He says, I will be there in my spirit. And he could also be referring to the spirit of the presence of God being there in their midst as well. And so the church discipline or excommunication involves the elements of spiritual authority and power. It is a scary thing if we come under this kind of discipline. And I hope that none of us would ever have to come under this kind of discipline, having to stand before the tribunal in your own denomination or in your local church or before the board of elders or, or before your mentors and peers. I hope that we would never have to go through that. But even Jesus talked about this. This is a very hard teaching, but even Jesus talked about this. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. Let's read this uh, out loud together. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. 
If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the witness of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. You see, it is exactly this text that the Roman Catholic Church have embraced for their for doctrine of excommunication. They feel that the church has that authority, and the church has that authority, indeed. It's based upon apostolic authority to exercise that authority. And it's a scary thing when you think about the power that has been granted, authority that has been granted unto the church. And it's more scary when you really think about the implications of what Apostle Paul is saying in verse 5. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Well, what do you think that means? Destruction of the flesh. Well, suffering of the flesh, some kind of sickness, some kind of ailment, some kind of plague will come upon him and his household. I think Paul is talking about something even more extreme than that. He's talking about death. He's sentencing death on this man so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So the discipline of excommunication implies handing the sinner over to physical suffering, even death. But what is the reason for this? This is what we need to understand. In the harshness of the discipline is one thing, but why? And the reason is very clear here. That through this discipline, it will have an effect of causing the man to repent and perhaps being saved on the day of judgment. Now, this does not negate our doctrine of assurance of salvation. You know, this is not like, okay, this person is saved, but now he's lost his salvation. Maybe he can get the salvation back on the last day. This, that's not what Apostle Paul is saying. When a man commits a sin like this, blatant sin like this, we need to question the very salvation of this man. Did he really have the right relationship with the Lord in the first place? Maybe not. Maybe he can repent of that. And maybe on the day of judgment, he can be saved. And this is what Apostle Paul is saying. He's talking out of mercy. Maybe we need to hand them over to the devil and see how cruel the devil would treat him. And that man, if he had any conscience, he will suffer. And in the process, maybe come back to the Lord. When we see other references, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and 7, that talk about the possibility maybe that this man had repented and rejoined the fellowship. There is that indication. If you get a chance, read those texts. And we're not totally certain about it, but it seems to be referring to this man who has repented of this horrible sexual sin and has rejoined the fellowship of the Corinthian church. So the church discipline, even excommunication, has a redemptive or restorative purpose. It is not vindictive. It is not to damn the people. It is not to curse the people, but it is to salvage them, to re redeem them, to restore them. But there's another reason for this discipline, and we find that in verses 6 to 8. Let's read this out loud together. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast 
leavens the whole batch of dough. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So another reason for the necessity of this kind of church discipline is to actually purge the church of sin. It is not only to save this person, bring this person to repentance, but it is actually to purge the entire church of sin and establish the code of holiness and ethics in the body. Here Paul talks about the yeast. And he talks about this in the context of the Passover. Maybe they were going through the Passover festival right at that time. And maybe this was an appropriate sort of an analogy of spiritual yeast that has permeated into the body. And what is a yeast? Ladies, all of you know what the purpose of yeast is, right? It is to make the dough rise, right? And by placing, sprinkling the yeast and then kneading the dough, you make the yeast penetrate into all parts of the dough and therefore having an effect. So yeast technically has been associated with sin and evil in the Jewish tradition. And because it has a way of permeating and spreading and influencing the rest of the dough. Even Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 16. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Don't get under the influence of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He reminded his disciples. And so he says, instead of the leavened bread, which signifies malice and wickedness, that has to do with arrogance about this incident of sexual immorality, he says, take unleavened bread, which has to do with sincerity and truth. And this is the key. How do we deal with the sin in the camp? We deal with it through truth and sincerity. We have to really face up to it, face our demons, face our sins. And this is what Apostle Paul is saying. And we see in the New Testament number of occasions in which the church has to deal harshly with those who sinned and who sinned and did not repent. We see the case of Ananias and Sapphira. Do you remember? They died because they lied before the apostles. Okay? They were in the praise and glory and thinking that, oh, we have sold this portion of land and we gave everything over to you. They didn't. They kept the portion for themselves. It's not that they were stingy about it. They lied before the apostles. And you might say, how could that happen? I mean, how could, how could they just allow people to die? And yet, because the church is such an infant at the time, they could not allow it to be permeated with the leaven of sin and wickedness. And Paul also talks to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 about two men, uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander, that he's handed them over to Satan, basically. The same type of reference that he is making here in the Corinthian church. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, we hear about this woman named Jezebel. We don't know whether that is just a, a code name for a woman who acted like the Jezebel in the Old Testament days. But because of her sin and because of her influence, Jesus says that her children are going to die. 
and that he's going to bring her and others associated with her to ruins. So we see the precedence for all of these kind of uh, uh, disciplines. And so Apostle Paul is not the only one who is being harsh when he's making this kind of discipline. Finally, let's read from verses 9 to 13. And let's come to a conclusion about this. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. Paul is saying, yeah, I told you not to associate with these sexually immoral people. But I didn't mean that you don't associate with these kind of people who are out there in the world. And you lead a separate life from them. In order to do that, you have to leave the world. In order to do that, you have to be a monastic type of person. You have to create your own Christian community away from the rest of the pagan world. This is not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about judging the people in the church, not the people of the world. If we went around judging everybody out in the world, we, you know, it'll be eternity before we finish judging them all. Okay? So he's obviously not talking about judging the people of the world. We don't really have the business judging them. Let the judges and the legal system handle that. We should judge the people within the church. This is what Apostle Paul is saying. Verse 11. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer or drunkard or swindler. Now, does this mean if a person sins one time, a few faults, and they make a mistake like this and they get drunk or something, or they have a sexually promiscuous incident, that you just condemn them and then you just lock them out of the church? I don't think that's what he's saying. He's talking about people who are operating with a lifestyle like this. And they're stubborn. They're arrogant about this. They say, what's, what's wrong with this? And you have to point out as a Christian, as a church, that this is wrong. You can't operate this and continue to claim that you're a Christian. Paul says, do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So we're not called to judge those outside the church. We're simply called to judge those inside. And if, even with this judgment, we're talking about those people who are insistent in living this kind of lifestyle without repentance. We cannot tolerate that. People can make mistakes. People can fall short in terms of sexual acts. They can um, maybe rob a bank too. Well, I don't know about that, but what I'm saying is if they did, and as long as that is not a persistent thing, but they're really sorry for this, and maybe they spend some time in jail for that, we're not to write them off. We're to embrace these people. We're talking about people who are sexually immoral, greedy, idolaters, slanderers, drunkards, and swindlers, thieves and robbers, 
who are insisting upon this lifestyle and still remaining in the church. We need to be adamant about this. Let them know that we mean business. We can't just tolerate them, especially for leaders. That is the toughest thing when you have to discipline the members of the church for that. And it is difficult when you have a pastor or an elder who's operating like that. Even for the people to point that out to the church. But that has to be done. The purging has to be done in the house of the Lord. Remember, the Bible says the judgment begins with the household of God. We have to be judged first. Why? Because God has to purify the church so by our purity, that will be a testimony unto others. So that when God judges the world, he is in the right. He said, look at my church. It has been purified. I already judged the church. Now I have the right to judge you. Because you don't come close to the standard that I have established for humanity. I love the words of Jesus in chapter 17, verses 15 to 17. In his prayer to the Father, the last prayer in the uh, upper room, and the next day he would be crucified, he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus says that we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. This is the important thing. We're not to be taken out of the world. We're to be in the world. But in the world, we are not of the world. The problem with the Corinthian church was that the issue was not that they were going outside into the world and keeping their maintaining their identity. They were allowing the world to permeate into their group and distorting their own identity. So as Christians, they're doing all kinds of horrendous sins and the people of the world look at that and go, hey, what kind of religion is this? You know, uh, how distinct is this? What's so righteous about this religion? Your Messiah died. We're being willing to, as a perfect man, to die for the world. And yet you're acting no different from the world. Then why did he die for you? So in order for us to be that witness of Jesus to the world, we have to be holy. Without that holiness, I don't think I could possibly, you, me, anybody could possibly have the boldness with which we can proclaim the gospel. Maybe we're not able to proclaim the gospel is because we feel like, hey, I haven't dealt with my own sin issues. I'm no better than the rest of the people out there. What can I say about Jesus? We have to have something that sets us apart from the world. And that's why it's so difficult for us to be Christians. I was talking to somebody the other day, and I, in our conversation, we realized that, wow, it is difficult being Christians. Why? Because we can't just get away doing the things that the people of the world do. I wish I could. Sometimes, don't you, don't you just want to go and like somebody offends you or does something bad? Don't you want to just go and bash them? You know, somebody cuts you off and then they park in your parking space. Don't you want to just pass by and take a key and go, 
Don't you want to do that? I'm tempted to do that, but I can't. I can't. We have to live a life that is apart from the lifestyle of the world. We have to be distinct. We have to be holy. We have to be righteous. We have to be pure. We have to be just. We have to be loving. We have to be forgiving. We've got to be all these things. And in that sense, we need to outweigh the righteousness of the world. And sometimes when we compare ourselves to people of different religions, the Muslims, for example, or the Buddhists, or Hindus, are we any more righteous than them? They're religious folks too. They got their codes of holiness and ethics. How righteous are we? I'm not talking about self-righteousness. I'm not talking about self-arrogance. I'm talking about abiding by the laws of God, the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ, the likeness of Christ. For what, For what reason? So that we may be witness to the world. That's what Jesus is calling us to be. We need to stay pure as the church to be a witness to the world. The Corinthians had to be pure as a church to be a witness to the city of Corinth. And that's why that man who sinned and remained unrepentant, arrogant about that sin, had to be dealt with to purge that yeast from the midst of this batch of dough, the bread, the body, the church. And that's why Apostle Paul is adamant about this. And perhaps this uh, can also apply to our daily lives as well. Our family life. Just life with just a few associates in our midst. It doesn't have to be a church as the structure, as a disciplinary structure imposing excommunication on the people. It could be something that we can apply to ourselves. Is there something about me that needs to be purged? Is there yeast that I need to deal with that's permeated into my psyche, into my soul? Or maybe the influences that I'm receiving, and those are like yeast that has permeated into my life? What about in my own family? Maybe they're being permeated with yeast that's coming from the internet. You know, a lot of influences we receive from the internet, or other influences from media and entertainment. Sometimes through books, sometimes through movies. We need to be purified. Only then can we be rightful witness of Jesus Christ in this world. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.